I pay homage to the Buddha. I pay homage to the Dhamma. I pay homage to the Sangha. So the last couple months, I think two or three months, I've been trying to uh, get together with my siblings, my two sisters. At this point, you know, all of us are uh, grown-ups, living our grown-up lives, our busy lives. You know, I have—I'm the eldest, but I, my two sisters are now uh, entering into their their thirties. And uh, one sister, she has uh, two children of her own, and the youngest, uh, she uh, has this very big new career and a lot of friends and social things that she's got going on. In the last couple years, I, I think that in some ways there was a bit of a reprieve from social obligation. So when we decided that we were going to try to spend more time together, my siblings and I, it wasn't all that difficult to find time. You know, we were usually pretty free and, and open on the weekends. And so we had that bit of time together where we could try to see each other once a month, maybe once every couple months, but now it's been a while. You know, time is dragging on. And we tried to get together recently, and once again, it, it was an issue of when is everyone free and not so free. Now, for me, I am arguably less busy than my sister's. I have a bit more time to try to get together with them. So in many ways, it's kind of rubbing up against their busy lives, which is completely understandable. But the kind of life I live now is uh, on purpose. It's, it's by design. I, you know, I value very, very highly the, the concept of, of seclusion and having time to spend doing things like meditation, spend time studying the Dhamma and things like that. And I was thinking back to this particular way of being as something that in many ways was uh, simply just a, a part of my, my nature, sort of born into the world, desiring seclusion, desiring quiet, a uh, bit of an introverted type. And some of you may relate to that as well, if you find yourselves being introverts and not much for social obligation and being busy all the time. A couple months ago, I was talking about uh, the family trips that we would take to Las Vegas and how I wasn't particularly a fan. And, you know, given the boisterous nature of a place like that, it's not surprising. But it did make me think about the, the kind of trips that I did take with my parents and with my sisters when I was young that I did enjoy. And not surprisingly, those trips were the ones that got me out into nature. The ones that got me away from a lot of noise and activity and a lot of people. Away from the cities and suburbs to somewhere secluded, somewhere quiet. You know, surrounded by trees and hills and various animals that might be around. I was very fortunate that my, my parents were able to do these kind of vacations and you know they 
they weren't uh, glamorous. You know, the, uh, we were uh, much of the time a, a single income home and my parents were raising three children. Uh, part of why so many of our trips did end up in nature is because something my, my father used to say you know, is, if you're going to try to have any kind of, of vacation regularly with with your kids and, and not spend a lot of money, the best thing you can do is go camping. So we did camp quite a bit. But the thing, uh, the places that stick out in my mind are the ones where we, we either had like an RV or a cabin. In fact, I think that's probably one of the ones we, we did the most. And we tried to stick close by to the Los, Los Angeles area. We tended to go to Big Bear, which is a place I'm sure many in the area, if you're in the Los Angeles area, are familiar with. Right now, I'm sure a lot of people are going up trying to do uh, skiing and whatnot, especially if there's snow up there or if they have the snow machines working, trying to get everything frosty for people to do that stuff. But we tended to go when there wasn't snow, and we tended to go so that we can go to the lakes around there. And if we were fortunate enough to rent a cabin that was right there on the lake, that's what we would do. And so I was young enough at the time when we were taking these trips, you know, I was anywhere from the age of, you know, I think we went on those kind of trips from the time I was 10 until the time I was an adult. And for some of that time, uh, I didn't even really know all that much about Buddhism, and I didn't even know that much about meditation. And it's funny that even despite not even knowing much about the forest traditions of Buddhism, I still tended to try to turn those those visits out into nature, staying at a cabin, into a kind of retreat. Whereas uh, other people, you know, they go to a cabin when they're a kid, maybe they get kind of bored, or they want to go off and do all sorts of, of sport activities. I tended just to stick to myself. You know, by the time I was around uh, 12, 13, my parents were comfortable enough with me uh, hiking a little bit on my own which these days, I don't know if parents would really let their kids do that, but, you know, it was a different time when I was around that age, you know, not drastically different, but different enough that I was able to go off on my own a bit. Those tended to be the times I enjoyed the most. You know, as, as I was walking amongst the trees and I wasn't surrounded by people at all, I was surrounded by nature, surrounded by stillness. And oftentimes as we'd come back from those trips, I would begin to fantasize about the life I might be able to live, a way of doing that all the time. Now, for my young 12-ish-year-old self, again, it's hard to know exactly what age I was when I was thinking these things. I don't think I wanted to break away entirely. I think I would often take a look at a place like Big Bear and go, you know, maybe I could live up there you know, buy a cabin or, or a little house and, and have a bit of a life up there, you know, uh, maybe open up a, a bookstore or open up a, some kind of, of shop and just live up there and have a, have a life. You know, it's not so secluded there. You know, back then you went to Big Bear, you know, they had restaurants, man, they even had a blockbuster. You'd be okay. You know, you'd have stuff to do. And I'd imagine this life that I'd have. So even at that age, I, I wanted to uh, distance myself from from the way most people seem to want to live or are forced to live or have to live or any variation on that theme. I wanted something different. But at that age, I, I tended to think of seclusion as something um, only external. 
You know, if I was just living out in nature on my own, that that, that would be enough. I'd, I'd be happy and I'd be free and I'd be able to do all the things I wanted to do. And as I was, as I grew up and became more spiritually inclined and thought more about meditation and thought more about spiritually connecting to my surroundings, again, that was something that I thought like, all I got to do is, is be out there and I think all, everything would be the way I'd want it to be. I was very externally focused on, on my seclusion. As I've become older and as I've continued now to study the Dhamma, to study the Buddhist teachings, you know, it's occurred to me that seclusion is, is absolutely important, but seclusion is not the same thing as isolation. Seclusion is not the same thing as being uh, cut off entirely from interaction. And seclusion externally matters only to the extent that it allows us to become secluded in our mind. That it's only as good as what we're able to do once we have said seclusion. This becomes obvious to me as I, I read the the accounts of the, the Buddha and his disciples. When you hear about these assemblies of people, whether these uh, disciples be monastic or lay, they're always doing these things together. <clears throat> Excuse me. When they're going on alms rounds, if they happen to be monastic, when they're listening to the teachings of the Buddha, when they're engaged in lessons and conversations, when they're engaged in each other's company in the form of Kalyanamita, they're not alone. The only times we hear of them being alone is during a particular part of the day that's in some translations called like the, the daily abiding. And what that meant is that for any of the monastics, there'd be a time of the day where a lot of the social obligations fell away and they were able to go off somewhere into the woods and meditate. Now, for those of us living a, a lay life, we can also make room for this, but perhaps not to the extent that uh, monastic living uh, in a forest monastery or even a city monastic, if they're able to, are able to do. But we can try to approximate that, but that daily abiding by trying to make room for daily meditation, because that's what the abiding was anyway. You know, we learned that meditation is not something simply that we do as we sit, that there are the postures of meditation, sitting, lying down, standing, walking. The idea that meditation can be something that um, can follow our bodily movements. It's not only something that happens while we sit, but it's something that we can make time for. And that in itself is a kind of seclusion, a very important kind of seclusion, an internal mental seclusion that becomes very important to have on a daily basis, something that we go back to, dip into again and again, and as much as we're able to continue that mental seclusion into our daily lives when we're not in our, what we might call our daily abiding, or the day's abiding. Now, the seclusion matters uh, because it's a part of the, the mental training that we do. Recently, I heard one of my teachers talk about the fact that uh, we, 
we train the mind the way we do as as Buddhists because an untrained mind is a dangerous mind. And really what that means is that uh, an untrained mind is a, a mind that's that's beset by the hindrances, uh, beset by the defilements, uh, beset by uh, effluence. And that word effluent matters because what that word is meant to capture is the way the mind reaches outward. You know, effluent means it's something that kind of pours out. And the untrained mind is, that's kind of how, how it works. When we talk about hindrances like, like ill will and sensual desire and, and doubt and sloth and drowsiness, restlessness, anxiety, those kind of things, we're talking about something that's, that's reaching ever outward. It reminds me of this one sutta that's pre precisely on seclusion. Uh, I think it's a Viveka Sutta from the Sunyutha Nikaya. And in that one, there's, there's a monk who is doing his daily abiding. A monk who's going off into the, into the woods, to, into the forest, to, to meditate. And you might be able to relate, as he sits down to meditate, the, be the mind begins to spiral outward. Even though he's in this beautiful forest, one can imagine, even if it weren't a beautiful forest, a forest remote. But he goes to the, the foot of a tree, sits down, crosses his legs, tries to bring mindfulness to the fore, does all the right things, but then he didn't quite do all the right things because that's all the external part that he did, sitting in cer a certain way, being in a certain location, even trying to you know, furrow his brow and put his hands together. All, all the things that on the outside we might see is like, ah, that's a skilled meditator. Look, he's even in full lotus. But then you look into his mind and there's completely other things happening. The proliferation, the, the stories that begin to, to take hold. All forms of becoming that start bubbling up in the mind. And so we can be uh, secluded in, in that way and then still have the mind reaching outward. And the way these stories go, there happened to be a deva who was nearby and watching and, and taking note and seeing what was happening with this monk as his mind was just spiraling out to other things. And so this deva appears before the monk and speaking in verse says a few words. And I will read it for you because I don't want to lose the nature of the words. So this deva inhabiting the forest grove, feeling sympathy for the monk, desiring his benefit, desiring to bring him to his senses, approached him and addressed him with this verse. Desiring seclusion, you've entered the forest, and yet your mind goes running outside. You, a person, subdue your desire for people. Then you'll be happy, free from passion. Dispel discontent. Be mindful. Let me remind you of that which is good. For the dust of the regions below is hard to transcend. Don't let the dust of the sensual pull you down. As a bird spattered with dirt sheds the adhering dust with a shake, so a monk, energetic and mindful, sheds the adhering dust. The monk, chastened by the deva, came to his senses, is the way it's translated here. Now, you might hear that and 
maybe one of the phrases that sticks out is subdue your desire for people, which is not the same thing as don't care about people, don't have goodwill and compassion and empathetic joy, you know, don't be surrounded by people from time to time, such as Kalyanamita, friends, family, but the desire we have, you know, you can imagine what kind of thoughts might have been plaguing this particular monk. I can think back to some of the things that plague me when I sometimes sit down to meditate, not as much as before, but certainly early on. And that's one of the things I hear most often from people, and especially after we've had this time of, you know, this pandemic that went on for quite a while and may still be going on. I think my niece might have COVID right now. Hope she's feeling okay. We had this time of potential seclusion, and I've talked about it before, that we had this time when a lot of the social obligations went away, and people were forced into seclusion. But that seclusion felt more like isolation, and even when it was seclusion, maybe it was effective, maybe it wasn't. But I do know that we had this time, and the external seclusion wasn't enough. I hear people talk about their meditation, and I hear how they say now, oh, well, no matter how much I sit, and I try to sit every day, the mind is still going, the mind is still going, still wandering, still spiraling, still proliferating thoughts. What do I do? And so that's why it's important that when we we talk about seclusion, and that in itself, we can talk about all of meditation, but in, in in this guise of seclusion, we can see how the external seclusion doesn't do all the work. It's good because it lowers the distractions, and then we're able to, to meditate and turn inward. But that's when we begin cultivating internal seclusion, the internal mental activity of meditation. So today's the 13th. Uh, some of you may not know that, I think it was on the 8th, um, it was Anapanasati Day. Mindfulness of Breathing Day. It's the day that celebrates when the Buddha gave the discourse that's now known as the Anapanasati Sutta, Majjhima Nikaya 118, one of my favorite suttas. And it's his description of breath meditation. And the third tetrad, because there are four tetrads overall, is the one that deals with the mind. We can look at the four tetrads and see how they correspond to uh, the four foundations that we see here, the four, um, let's say, activities of uh, satipatthana. You know, mindfulness of body, mindfulness of feeling, mindfulness of mind, mindfulness of, some people call it mental objects, some people call it just by its poly term, dhammas. But there are these these four things that we can use as a, the focal point of our, our meditation or the way I like to think about it is that we have these four things that we're bringing together into our meditation. Anytime we sit down to meditate or stand or do walking meditation, we lie down to meditate. We're bringing all of these things along because there they are the moment we start paying attention to them. We have this body, we have these sensations, we have this mind, and we have the mental objects in the mind. We also have the dhammas, teachings of the Buddha says are good to contemplate as we meditate. So the third tetrad is that on the mind. 
And when we look at that, we can see how we might, when we meditate, begin to work with the mind and eventually bring it to a point where we are releasing it from the hindrances, defilements. So the first thing that we do in this tetrad is we become sensitive to the mind. So this is the part that I think most people are familiar with because it ends up being the way mindfulness is, is taught. You know, insight meditation is taught. Vipassana meditation is taught uh, around the world now where you, you learn to be aware of your mind, sensitive to it in the, in the sense that as you sit down to meditate, you can see what's happening in the mind. You can see the thoughts as they arise. Perhaps you see them as they sustain themselves for a while. Perhaps you see them as they, as they pass away, as they cease, as they fade. Maybe not. Maybe we have a moment of absent-mindedness. And so when, when people are teaching those, that kind of technique, you know, this, this awareness sort of meditation, uh, they're not wrong in the sense that that is an important step, that we do want to become aware of the contents of the mind. The error, as far as, as I see it, and I'm not the only one that sees it this way, but um, I'll, I'll speak for myself, the error that I see is the idea that it's that it's only bare attention or bare awareness. That so long as as you are are able to see what's happening in the mind, that that's that'll resolve it, all of it. You'll just be able to look and and the and if you see things come up, you know various defilements, hindrances, painful things, sensual desire, fantasies, whatever, what what have you, whatever comes up. The, the only solution, the only problem is is how aware you are, how much attention you're paying. And if those things don't go away, it means you still haven't applied enough attention, enough awareness. I spent a lot of time uh, meditating that way, and I became acutely aware of the unskillful thoughts in my mind. <laughs> and the awareness alone uh, didn't make them go away. Some, some did, you know, some are, uh, there's, there's a way they talk about it in the, in the Thai forest tradition, but I think probably all forest traditions, you know, so some of these defilements some of these hindrances, you know, they're, they're not very, they're not very, uh, willful or strong or kind of shy. And so all you need to do is look at them and they kind of skitter away, but there's a lot of other stuff in the mind that you can look at it dead in the face and it doesn't matter square in the face. It doesn't matter. You know, partially because we have some some habits, mental patterns that are so ingrained that awareness just means that, okay, well, now you see the problem and that's helpful, but then that's it. It's, it's still there. And then the other issue is that if we're talking about greed and, and aversion and delusion, then we have a delusional mind, which means that we can see the thing and still not see it. We see right through it. We can imagine ourselves to be in a place that we're not. Imagine qualities of the mind that we haven't actually developed. We can rationalize with ourselves that maybe the things happening in the mind actually aren't so bad and, and when whatnot. So once we get past that first part, learning to breathe in and out sensitive to the mind, we want to go to the next step, which is gladdening the mind. Train ourselves to breathe in 
gladdening the mind. Train ourselves to breathe out, gladdening the mind. Now, one of the ways that we gladden the mind seems counterintuitive the way we often talk about meditation, which is that we're trying to do this all without thinking. But sometimes you might find that you have to think yourself into what we might say is not thinking. Getting rid of uh, directed thought and evaluation so that the only thinking that's happening is discernment, a more immediate kind of thought, but it's still there. And so we, we think good thoughts to gladden the mind. For example, the very fact that today's meditation, as it's been for a while now, at least to maybe a year, we, we have our meditation surrounded about, around metta, goodwill or loving kindness. One of the things that we can do to gladden the mind is to practice those Brahma Viharas, to sit down and meditate and spread thoughts of goodwill, of compassion, of empathetic joy, and also equanimity. That also does a lot to gladden the mind. One of the phrases that we find in the canon, and that's used by many teachers to also illustrate the point, is this one phrase that happens at the beginning of meditation. You know, we have the one where mindfulness is brought to the fore, which is also important, but we also have this phrase that we set aside greed and distress with reference to the world. And that's an important part of the meditation is that recognizing that even us as, as householders, as, as lay people, when we, sit down to, when we sit down to meditate, or any of the postures of meditation, anytime we endeavor to meditate, we're taking a break, in a way, from our lay life. What that means is that we can set aside the concerns we have for our lay life. Because at the end of the meditation, we'll have to pick them back up again because we're still living our lives with the various responsibilities we have. But we can set them aside for, the, for a time. And that can be relieving all on its own, gladdening all on its, on its own, that you can see that what you do when you sit down to meditate is something that you're doing for yourself something that you're doing for your own good, which means that some of these burdens that you have with you, you can tell yourself as you're settling into your meditation, you can tell yourself this as you're following the breath and watching the contents of the mind, is that, ah, yeah, this is, this is a householder responsibility that I can set aside for now. It's not something that I need to keep dwelling on. I'll bring myself back to this moment, this thing that I'm doing, this act that I'm doing that is an act of goodwill for myself, something that's for my happiness, my peace, my assurance. And we can direct the mind that way. We can also choose to, to recollect people that inspire us. It's important to be inspired when we meditate. You know, if, if we go into it uh, with the attitude that I've seen from some people, like we're flossing or brushing our teeth, it's going to be hard to do every day, you know, like if you think about the things that you have to do or the things that you don't enjoy doing, you're not going to have the, the motivation to do it. And so when you are getting the mind inclined towards meditation, you have that ability to inspire yourself by thinking about people like the Buddha, but also his disciples or various people that you've met along the path that, that have been an encouragement to you. You can think on your Kalyanamitta. And you can think on their good qualities. You can think on your, your parents. You can think on the devas. You can think on, on any, any being 
that is is likely to encourage you, inspire you, anyone that you look up to and admire and, and you want to be like. I know that I've used this effectively for myself in that sometimes, and you know, I've sat down to meditate and, you know, the the particular uh, motivation isn't isn't there, and it's not that I should always rely on motivation, but sometimes that's the right medicine. You need a little motivation to get it going. And so I think about my teachers and my Dharma friends and my Kalyanamita, and I think about the generations of people going far back to the Buddha himself who have done this practice, walked this path, developed these qualities, trained the mind, and found happiness in what we're endeavoring to do. You know, we're not in mental boot camp. We're also not in mental vacation time either, just sort of blissing out. That we're doing something really important. We're, we're helping ourselves break up the habits that prevent us from an internal happiness, a happiness that's not reliant on any external factors. We're looking for that seclusion that is there whether or not we happen to be in a forest, the kind we can take with us wherever we go. So after we've gladdened the mind, the next step in, in this tetrad is to concentrate the mind. Train myself to breathe in, concentrating the mind. Train myself, breathing out, concentrating the mind. And so the, the word concentration here is samadhi which means that we're, we're bringing our, our mind to the task at hand. If the task is mindfulness of breathing, as we're doing in Anapanasati, then this is the thing that once we've gladdened the mind, we've released the burdens temporarily, we're able to, to just be here in the body, trying to, to breathe in such a way that is, that is calm, that is, that is pleasant, with the Buddha called a pleasant abiding we create in the body. And that has its ripple effects. It goes from the body to the sensations, the feelings, and that can travel then up to the mind, that the mind itself can be lifted up by, by feeling this way, by recognizing that the mind in its fabricating can fabricate in such a way, create in such a way, condition them, the, this experience we have of body and mind in such a way that we find peace. And that in itself can be the way we walk ourselves into concentration, which is, again, very different from the usual story we get, this idea of, of one-pointedness, this idea that what we're after is to, to focus on whatever it is we're looking at in our meditation so minutely that it's, we're, it's like we're like a microscope. It's like, or let's say like one of those uh, procedurals, you know, those kind of cops shows that they always have technology for photos that don't exist, you know, enhance, enhance, enhance. And then you can see the license plate and everything. You can see someone's thumbprint, you know, it's ridiculous. Photos don't even work that way. But yeah, you know, there's, there's this idea that, you know, all we need to do to, to free ourselves and to enter into deep states of meditation is enhance, enhance, enhance. And you find people that, that say that they're able to feel every molecule and atom of their body, and they, you know, so they're able to concentrate in such a way they can tell you the color of their spleen or whatever. And it's like, all right, fine, sure, I'm, I'm not going to discredit their experience, but uh, that's not what concentration means. You know, it, it means a, a collectedness. It means a kind of of uh, tranquility in, in the sense that it's very solid. 
You're creating a, a space where your mind will no longer wander away all by itself. You've given it a place to, to stay, a place to perch. And so that takes us to the uh, fourth part of this tetrad, which is to breathe, training the mind towards release. You're releasing the mind is the language that's used there. I, I train myself to breathe in, releasing the mind. I train myself to breathe out, releasing the mind. And what that means is that once we have that foundation of concentration, we're then able to release the mind, even temporarily, from these hindrances, from these defilements, from these effluents. And we're able to get a glimpse of what it's like to have a, lot, a mind that's luminous and free. And some people, you know, they'll, they'll poo-poo this. They're like, oh, well, you know, it's only temporary. The moment you get it from your, med your meditation, it all comes back. Well, yeah, because if it didn't, that would mean you're an arahant. It means you're liberated. But the fact that we're able to do this consciously through our own efforts, it shows us that we are an active participant in our minds, that we are creating our experiences, which means that we can create better, that that's why we train the mind, because we recognize we've been fabricating all along. We've been creating all along. And we've been doing this in a habitual way that has not been for our genuine and true happiness. But as we see that we're able to do this on purpose, we get a glimpse into what release itself might be like, which is a, the most purposeful we can be, the most awake and, and present we can be as a liberated person. So that's what I've been thinking about for the celebration of Anapanasati Day, this this talk on seclusion I've, I've given you, to think about seclusion not just on the outside, but to think of seclusion also on the inside and the way we can seclude the mind and protect the mind and train it so that we can find that internal happiness that we're all really after. So I'll end my talk there. <laughs>